Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your goodness to us. We'd ask that you'd guide us and remind us of the good things you have for us. This we ask in your son's name. Amen. Well, it's not often that we have... Uh, just a second, let me shut this door. It's not often that we have a, uh, um, a First Samuel and a Psalms uh, sermon text. I put the, the psalm I was looking at, Psalm 52, is nine verses long. It would have looked awful just all by itself there. And you would have got your hopes up. You would have said, he'll be through this in seven minutes. Now, at the top of the Psalm 52, right there under the title of Psalm 52, to the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. That's a nice little, you always, sometimes you just get a song of Korah. Uh, the sons of Korah. Just tells you, this tells you what had happened that had made this psalm come to be. And thankfully, it's a situation that 1 Samuel records. So if you're back in 1 Samuel 21, Goliath is slain in about 17, I think it is. 1 Samuel, yeah. David slays, slays Goliath in 17. Saul starts to get issues with David because he's popular with the ladies and popular with his daughter and... He tries to kill him a few times. That's over chapter 19. Jonathan, Saul's son, has really uh, clicked with David and their great and bestest of friends. Of course, Saul's ticked at his son. His daughter loves him. His son loves him. Everybody loves David. Why can't they love me? You know, that kind of, that kind of notion. So David runs away in chapter 21 from Saul. Um, and he runs to Ahimelech and um, who was the high priest at the time uh, to get supplies, to get some uh, resources. Uh, Ahimelech's a little concerned and gives David Goliath's sword. Remember Goliath had been killed and the sword was taken. And he gets Goliath's sword and gets some bread uh, some of the showbread from the temple. And in chapter 21, verse 7 of 1 Samuel, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. It's a notable guy in Saul's retinue, herdsman anyway, not a soldier. And it mentions that to you in chapter 21. And then, in chapter 22, which is the portion I have quoted here, Saul is out hunting for David, and he's just sort of having one of those moments. He's sitting up on top of a hill under a certain kind of tree, I think. Um, what verse is that? 
tamarisk tree. His spear in his hand, he's sitting there brooding over the events of recent times. And he's wondering why nobody's coming to his aid. Everybody likes David. David's got 400 men who have fled to him and now are his supporters. And the first verse here at the top of the right-hand side. 1 Samuel 22, 7, And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, okay, he's got one of those Conan the Barbarian moments going, you know, it's a tamarisk tree on top of a hill, he's sitting there with his spear in his hand, and he's grousing about it. Hear now, you Benjaminites, will the son of Jesse, that's David, give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands? and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a league with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me. You can almost hear the whine. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. The king... He's playing all the, you, you, you expect to hear this out of your villain in the piece. He, what's so, Gunn came back from a history conference last night um, in Seattle with some history majors and so forth. And, and he said it was wearying to spend three days with non-believers. Some of you spend a lot of time with non-believers, but wearying to be trapped with non-believers. I mean, no exit. He said, they complain a lot. What was the phrase you used, Gun? When, when they don't have anything to complain about, they, they find something. They'll go looking. Saul is in the... Just, he's king. He's with his people. And he's wondering what gift did the son of Jesse give you? That none of you is standing by me. Did, did you guys get all sorts of commands that my son has turned on me? Nobody is sorry for me. But in the previous chapter, chapter 21, Doeg, the Edomite, had heard something at the tabernacle. He had heard something. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Doeg saw his opportunities. Always probably played by someone in the movie version would probably be What's his name? That villain uh, Robinson. Um, he played uh, Dathan in the Ten Commandments. Art, what's that? Edward G. Robinson. Edward G. Robinson. A kind of a schmarmy, you know, obsequious sort of guy with a whiny voice. You're gonna picture Doeg. Even the name Doeg sounds not just like, hey, that's a great Edomite name. No, no, your mom did you wrong. 
and he's an Edomite. You say, what, 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 what's the Edomite? An Edomite is <clears throat> uh, a, a descendant of Esau. Instead of a descendant of Jacob, he's a descendant of Esau. So, kind of, you know, Irish stepchild. That kind of relationship. Could live around there, could have some purpose, but wasn't quite in the line of the elect people. But Doeg has an opportunity. He's heard some stuff. He was there. He heard some stuff. And Saul's complaining about nobody is sorry for me. I'm the king. So he tells him. So our sermon pops up the point is don't let opportunities like these pass you by. That's what we're learning, right? Doeg took an opportunity. But anytime we think we, and, and, and it seems, if you put yourself in Doeg's situation, really, your employer, he was the head of Saul's herdsman, you heard some stuff that is from the enemies of your boss, who is not just your employment boss, but your political boss. In the next circumstance you're in, you're in a situation where the king wants some information. He wants somebody to give him something. You see an opportunity, naturally, to move forward. What would you have done? Just, to, just, turn, just turn David in. Well, he's kind of running away from the king. He ought to be turned in. So, what happens is that King Saul pays a visit to Ahimelech and doesn't like the interview he has with Ahimelech. So he says in verse 17, the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. They did not take the opportunity that Doeg took. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. That's understandable, right? Don't kill priests. I mean, then the king said to Doeg, Ah, he's back. A man who sees his opportunities. You turn and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and fell upon the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. He racked up a score of priests. 85 dead priests from, Edom, from Doeg. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. They didn't stop there. They didn't just kill 85 priests. Both men and women and children and sucklings, oxen, asses, and sheep, he put to the sword. <clears throat> Doeg is a man of his opportunities. So what is the difference? When you say, you know, opportunity knocks or seize your opportunities, the problem is not that you would seize your opportunities. Because you have opportunities in every situation. 
What do you end up, what forces, what principles do you use to serve those opportunities, to expand those opportunities, to build those opportunities into something? What do you want out of the opportunity and what are you willing to pay to get the opportunity? Verse 20 says, but one of them, the sons of one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, fear not, for he that seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Now, that's the circumstance. David on the run, he's got a small band of brigands, 400 men. He had a little meeting with the priests to get some supplies. Somebody saw and somebody told, cost the life of all those people. I don't know if it was that night, but David writes Psalm 52 in response to Doeg telling Saul. He's got the blood of these people. Essentially, it's my fault, he says. I have occasioned the death of your father's house. So what does he say? Why do you boast, O mighty man, of mischief done against the godly? All the day you are plotting destruction. Your tongue is like a sharp razor, you worker of treachery. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking the truth, Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. It lets you know there's not opportunity nor opportunity seized. It's what kind of person, what opens up to you as a possibility. Notice that the guard that Paul, Saul commands to kill the priest won't do it. They had an opportunity. They had an opportunity to get more reward from the king. But not everybody sees more reward for the king from the king as the path that they want to take to that desired end. Now, what you want to do is check yourself because in every situation, this is an opportunity. Being in a car wreck is an opportunity. Standing by the bedside of a relative who is dying of something is an opportunity. Ministering to somebody on campus or at your work is an opportunity. All of these things are, everything is an opportunity. Stubbing your toe is an opportunity. Because every moment opens up in front of you and it's asking you, where do you want to go and how do you want to get there? Certain kind of people. are willing to get there by mischief they plot 
willing to lie because really getting there, really what's important is me getting there. Truth is not more important than me getting where I'm going. Notice how Saul has complained about what people won't do for him and how they don't know that he can reward them. Now, David is feeling this uh, measure of men who have sought advancement. The badly named man of a people group that you don't quite get along with, but they're all around, are all around you. Taking opportunities for advancement, for reward. Now what is that, and you've heard me say this before, when, when a person has a utopia that they are seeking, an ambition, a, a direction they want to go, you could be wrong about both, where you want to go, how you want to get there. You could be wrong about one of them. Where you want to go might not be a, a reasonable or godly thing, but you get there through hard work, you know, hard work, not ratting people out. But when, you, when your principles are read, when, the, when you examine how your opportunity is met, how do you get there? What you have here, you say, look, nobody is on the run and nobody's turning anybody in these days, nobody ratting that no honor among thieves and people turning state's evidence. Um, but you see this sort of motive in gossip. You want something, you say, well, I don't know how I'm going to take this home, Evan, and apply the doeg thing killing priests, 85 priests. Not my really, I wouldn't do it. It'd be icky. But you know, ladies, maybe you've run into somebody, a friend of yours, that the gossip comes off the tongue just a little too easily. The destroying of somebody's reputation. A little bit too ready. And you can almost see the satisfying sense of advancement they think they're getting as they gossip with you. Because they're tearing down someone else, they're going for that advancement. And if it ever lands, if, if, the, if the scales ever fall from your eyes and you're looking at this person, it's almost with horror as you watch some soul <clears throat> implode violate Christian principles to get ahead. David is one of those people who says, and I knew Doeg would tell. I knew he would do that. I put your family at risk because I, I, I knew he would hear and tell. People who are trying to build their own life, are trying to build a comfort for their own life. They're trying to get the command. They're trying to get the vineyards, the fields. They're trying to get a place. Everything you do, you're trying to push other people aside, kill the priests, gossip about the friends, 
hoping that in your you know, sort of rambunctious style of play, your most aggressive, all out my mother, I don't need to dis defame her memory, we decided not to play basketball with her anymore. They put a basketball hoop, this is when we were in junior high, in our backyard, poured a pad, and Bessie Dodds Wilson, playing basketball with her sons. She's five foot four. She was all elbows, all flying. Just pointy Canadian elbows in, in your face, in your eye, didn't matter what. She was, and there, she had a reputation of cognitiveness out there. But on the basketball court, it was all elbows. And what is a, a person going into the game? Oh, that's just a game. But into the, th the life you're trying to create, are you willing to shovel someone in the middle of the back? A satisfaction in that. Oh, you know, you've been tempted to gossip, haven't you? I know I've been tempted to gossip. Where you had a joint, you know, the piece of information. I <laughs> just, and it's the kind of information that would, in your mind, move you up a notch and move someone else down a notch. But God, it says in verse 5, will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. That's what's going to happen. Because we're all, to the extent we're playing this game, where we, we sense what is the opportunity end and what is the opportunity method I am using. If you think you're the one going to be in charge of your life and you're going to design the kind of life you want, and your principles start to fail because really it's you you serve, so consequently the truth or the gossip or the, the, the traitorous act the malice, the murder, all of that is in service to you being comfortable in life. And the phrases in this section, verse 5, God will break you. We were talking yesterday, some friends, uh, Drones Club, about evil and Calamity and as evil as calamity and sin and how sin is calamitous sin will Sin you can't run an engine that way It feels good it rewards you But like we learned about Jadis she got what she wanted, but she got despair with it If you pursue Your goals in the opportunities, pursue them your way, where you are the one being served, so you are the one dictating whether or not you're allowed to do that to somebody. It will break you. God will break you. Snatch and tear you from your tent. That's almost, you can almost visualize that in a movie adaptation of Psalm 52. Some Bedouin doing mischief in his life, thinking, that no one sees, God doesn't care. Being snatched, torn from his tent, uprooted from the land of the living. 
Now, that's the nature of the real story. Well, I've been talking to a number of people recently about uh, narratives that we, we plan. You think, when you have your own goals, you think the narrative you write for action, if it serves those goals, is okay to do. That's why we excuse ourselves in gossip or excuse ourselves in malice. We think since it serves the goal, it's okay to do. Well, the problem is, you are a person who doesn't deserve to live. In God's world, because God has the goals in his universe, and he's the only one powerful enough to make sure those goals are met. So when God... What was that we used this phrase yesterday, I think, uh, instant karma. Isn't that a Beatles? Instant karma is going to get you. Some people it's not instant. Some people it's just going to happen. The calamity of their sins is going to come back on them. Now, uh, the righteous witnessing this, because we're supposed to gain a lesson. We're not just but sit cowering in the corner, watching. It's a tragedy. David is affected. Ahimelech, a man he had befriended and gotten a benefit from, because he had done that, is now dead, along with 84 other priests and all their families and workers. But we don't just wring our hands and, and bemoan the wickedness of the age. You know that God will break them down, snatch them, uproot them. The righteous, verse 6, shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. It's such an inferior position. It may be a position that hurts a lot of people. It may be a position that kills a lot of the righteous. I mean, literally kills them. But when you see someone serving something that cannot win, cannot, whether it's the white witch in Narnia, no matter how much power she puts into it, she can't win. Satan can't win. Not that we just don't want him to win, or not he's just the bad guy and who knows, but can't win. Now, it would probably take all the fun out of a football game if you, if it was rigged. But it's like watching a football game that you've already seen but was DVR'd for somebody else. And they're watching, and you know your team won. You know that history can't be changed. And they're just marching their way, no matter what happens on the field, you can laugh. Because you know what's going to happen. Did you see that? What was it? Was it last Sunday? The uh, Villanova, North Carolina? Monday. Monday. Monday? So this is our first religious service since then. It has to be mentioned. Now, I'm not a big basketball fan. I think it's an excellent sport. North Carolina is a great team. Always has been a great team. And they did wonders to bring back from a 10-point deficit. And with about 27 seconds, 
made it way down the court. The guy tripped the ball handler. He staggers to his left and shoots while he's staggering. 20 seconds left, less than 20 seconds. Now about 15, 10, something. The clock's ticking on the screen. He's tripping. He throws it to the basket and makes it. Three points, ties the game. There are 4.7 seconds left. It's, it's overtime. We're talking overtime. But no. Because if you had known this and you could place some bets on it, you would get great odds. Because Villanova throws the ball in, 4.7 se seconds. They dribble it down the court, three, two, hand it to one guy, and boom, from outside the three-point line, just to rub it in. I mean, two points would have beat him, too. It was tied up. As it goes to zero, the ball goes through the net. National champions. Place goes nuts. All, every member of the North Carolina team committed suicide that night. It was sad, but hey, excellent. If you do, those moments happen. And you know that in your world, that no matter where people run, no matter how many of you they kill, every man stands before the God of glory and gives an account for what he has done, whether it be good or evil. They all have to say to God, I did it because I wanted to and I thought I was more important than you. And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. To a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That's what he does. That's why we're told, my brethren, never avenge yourselves. Why? Because it's wrong to avenge yourself? No. Vengeance must be taken. My brethren, never avenge yourselves, for vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will tend to it. That's why you look upon this as the persons are doing mischief, as they seize their opportunities that serve themselves, and are willing to do any immoral thing to make that utopia, that end result happen. You want them being yanked out of their tents, uprooted, and you laugh. But it's the kind of laugh that he says, oh man, fear attached. That was an interesting thing, that fear. You see, you fear, and you laugh. Saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his wealth. That's what riches and wealth are. They are a means, a representation of that which you could do. It's a medium of exchange. You could do stuff with it. Just like power. I mean, you have, you have guns and an army behind you and a lot of wealth. and You know that this power is going to be used to build what you think is right to build. And if you would not make God your refuge, if you would not... Um, if you're building something else, your own refuge, your own place, no matter how much money you sink into it, no matter how much, God has systems all over, the very design of things, it's all futility. Working on this back porch at the house, and already you can see, 
what you're having to do to try to stave off the inevitable decay. It'll still be there after I'm dead. But not for very long. How much of that's going to be available to archaeologists in a thousand years? Will there be anything left of Evans Porch? Big slab of concrete under the ground. What was this? A sacred area, probably. See the man who would not make God his refuge, who trusted in the abundance of his riches. That's how David is measuring Doeg's action. It's not that David was a mass murderer. He didn't kill people because he wanted them dead. He saw these people being dead as what a great way to... I'm listening to the king complain about everybody and I've got this bit of knowledge that will conserve his interests. And Doeg directs Saul to Ahimelech and then Saul talks himself into wanting Ahimelech dead and he's looking for someone to kill him. Doeg was there in the background going, oh, okay, sure. I'll do that too. Not because he liked dead people or blood or whatever, but because he had a refuge to build. He had vineyards to own. He had riches to protect himself. He needed to have those. How, have you ever played the uh, win the lottery game where you sit around, oh, if I win the lottery, first I would donate a lot to the poor in the Sudan. And then to your ministry, Evan, I don't know how many people have promised me a share of their winnings, and I always like to ask them, well, why don't you just pray that God will let me win the lottery? Rather than giving you the difficult choice about what to do with it. No one's given me any winnings yet, but I, I really don't think anybody's won that I knew. Abundance of riches, how, how quickly when you could buy a refuge, buy peace in your life? Is that what you think you can do? David has opportunity in the fact that he's on the run, he has no peace, his friends have been killed. He has an opportunity. You take a refuge in God, not in your own decisions about what you do. We don't replace evil opportunity and the wicked getting punished with Christians' opportunity and us getting rewarded in the same thing. Our opportunity might be permanently in the put down and hunted and destroyed and persecuted circumstance. Our opportunity is that God is our refuge and we have a different way of, of building it. We don't, we don't wait for the good time. The good things, good times happen. You know, Leslie and I were staining yesterday, and we got done with staining I, uh, the, the pergola roof of the back porch, and of course we were covered with stain, uh, and sweaty and hurting, and we, so we both were gonna take some baths. We took baths, ended up on the front porch on that beautiful day yesterday, the front porch sitting there, clean and at ease and everything was right with our world. We, we know what physical gratification can mean in that situation. 
We know what it, what it offers. We don't get that necessarily. Those are not bad things to have. God gives some people those things. But when you take refuge in God, the means God uses to bring about to bring about the, the good that God wants out of you um, could be good times, could be bad times. David's having a bad time. But he's not going to trust in his own refuge, in his own riches, and his own wealth. What he's going to do, look, look at this last bit. This is what I, man, he's just got the worst news possible. The worst news possible, I was leaving the house yesterday to get my dad up and, uh, or do something in the car and Connor was on the front porch and he was looking down the street and there was an ambulance and a fire engine and a couple cop cars down on the corner, that's where the Hipples lived and, and Mr. Hipple had, had died uh, at that point and he was like, oh my gosh, somebody I know neighbor I've had for 35 years. I married his daughter. I didn't, that's not her daughter, but I did the wedding. First wedding I ever did was, was uh, Carol Hipple. Carol? Um, suddenly your day takes on a little bit more serious note. Somebody you've known for a long time just died down the street. David's got a little bit bigger news coming across. Abiathar shows up and says, They've killed 85 of the priests, including my father and everybody in town. Because you stopped by. It's reading pretty heavy. He makes a very dark appraisal of Doeg. But then when he appraises his own self regarding taking refuge in God, but I, notice how it's been, you boast, oh, mighty man, you have done this. You're plotting destruction. You love evil. He will uproot you, but I, verse 8, like, am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Is this hippie talk? You know, some sort of, I'm like free-range kale. <laughs> we don't like green words showing up. But this is, what is this saying? A green olive tree in the house of God. What does that mean? He's just being poetic? No, he's just been punched in the gut. He's just been told that it wasn't a heart attack that took Ahimelech, but someone cutting him down in cold blood because. When we're a green olive tree, this is what I was thinking of because of what follows. We're essentially a domesticated houseplant. And domesticated houseplants, you know what outside plants will do. Just like feral cats, they breed, they run around, there's a lot of them. What do outside stuff do? So Andrew was over the other day trying to cut some peppermint or spearmint out of our yard. He says, because if you don't, bad things will happen. The spearmint apocalypse will be in your backyard. I'm trying to get rid of those aspens in the back of my yard because they are the apocalypse. They are bad. But you bring any plant inside the Wilson home, we immediately kill it. 
because it cannot survive complete attention. But that's what a domesticated house plant becomes. They're, they're, they're frail. They, they like sun in the windows and you watering and you can get a little thing that goes into the dirt, tells you how much water does it need. Plants outside don't need that. Outside plants don't need that. They just live, they die, they conquer. But that's what we are. You're in the house of God, a green olive tree. So other than the negative things I was saying about them being little, you know, special flowers for Jesus. If you take refuge in God, God is the agent. He is the domesticator. He is what's, what's building your good. Remember, you have to have in your story an eye on what is the good. Do you want to live inside the house of God, being cared for by God's principles and God's provision? Because if I don't, if I create my own, well, I'm going outside. I'm going to go out. You ever, ever have a kid run away? Did you ever run away? It's always hilarious. Parents always let me pack you a sandwich and tie it up in a little stick so I could have this moment of walking around the corner then realizing they might be missing something like Rice Krispie treats. And they come home. They learn the lesson quickly. Some people don't learn it until they're in their you know, post-college years. They realize, hold it, I'm going to go out and do my own. Take refuge in God. Because if you don't, you have to answer everything God would have. You've got to provide a guide for your moral actions. Talking to Bradley about this a couple nights ago. Came over um, about the nature of people who are not skeptical about their own argument with God. I don't think God exists. Well, how does good and evil work for you? And they, and they have a very hard time, very hard time. It's an impossible time coming up with any reason to be good. There is no reason to be good. Zero. Consequently, if I reject taking refuge in God, if I say, I'm going to be an outside plant, I'm going to be an olive, a wild olive tree out here doing what I want to do, making the world the way I want it, you have to replace the watering that the master of the house puts on you, the protection that the master of the house puts on you. You must replace all that God has provided. And you're not, one, bright enough to do that. Powerful enough to create an ethic. You want your kids to grow up and learn about Jesus and, and, or, or, or believe in goodness, treating their fellow man good? Don't do it as an atheist. Because they'll see right through it. They'll know there's no reason for me to obey you. You just don't like it? That's why we laugh. The arguments are a little uh, specious. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. This is what he comes... When he's a green olive tree in the house of God, he's got three basic things. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank thee forever because thou hast done it. I will proclaim thy name for it is good in the presence of the godly. You know how... Have you ever seen something awkward like someone who finally got some money, won it in the lottery, didn't give it to Evans Ministry, went out and spent it 
on trying to look like they were something they weren't. Something that did not come to them naturally. They put a turret on their house. You know those people, I think it's the Sanchez's, friends of ours, but they put a turret on the side of their house. It was an old house. It lacked a turret. And somehow they got some money, they put a turret on the house. There's another one over on 8th Street, not 8th Street, 6th Street. Think, talk to an architect before you put turrets on anything. Too much money, too quickly spent. That's what they do. They, they don't know what they're doing. We, when we take refuge in God, not only are the basic things of life answered. What are my principles? What am I allowed to do? What am I supposed to act like? All those answered for you. You will trust him, and you will thank him, and you will proclaim him. These are things when I find my refuge in God is where it is. That's the opportunity. And it's an opportunity that works whether things are going good or ill for you. Because that's what David's going through. It's ill. He takes refuge in God. You have all this ground of thanksgiving. All this ground of trusting. And all this ground of proclaiming. We're faced with either you're going to be the hope and the refuge. And consequently you better take as much money and power out of the system by as many dishonest, malicious acts as you can because that's the only way. That's the only way. Well, and it won't work because you get yanked out of your tent. God will kill you. So it's not a great story. Not a great story. The other is take refuge in God. You've got to get over that houseplant illustration I, I stress too much. But you're taken care of and you declare the God of the universe. Let's thank him. Dear Lord, we're grateful. For your mercies to us, how you care for your people. We'd ask that we would accept the direction of life you have planned. The way of doing, the end of being. Help us recognize this is the only way to survive in this universe. In your son's name, amen.